but you missed the intro music if you can hear all this. So Alex Shaw here with uh, Risk Matters Podcast, Todd Conklin in the house, Bennett Whitehouse doing quality control over without a mic, and Jimbo Redman, how's everybody doing? Doing good. Special day to get uh, Todd in the recording studio. Are you kidding? It's just a pleasure to be here. <laughs> I get to sit next to Governor Bennett Whitehouse. <laughs> the great state of Virginia, the that's great right. Straight. Yeah, so one way to one way to pigeonhole uh, Todd into a into a podcast is after he does a presentation, you ask him all of these kind of uh, ancillary questions that <laughs> that maybe on the surface don't appear to be cornering him in, but it's like, hey, so when does your flight leave? <laughs> you know, where are you staying? Do you have a ride back to your hotel? And then, boom, hey, we've got podcast equipment. How do you how cut your own hair? <laughs> <laughs> you make your own clothing? Yeah. So how about we uh, we'll drop you off at your room and we'll set up a little recording studio. <laughs> It's perfect because I also got a podcast out of the deal, so I'm happy as a clam. There we go. So, Todd, you uh, you're in town today to to give a presentation, or you just did to S. L. Williamson, a paving contractor. Yeah, what a great today. company. Yeah, we should incredible. we should take a moment and talk about this. Is a family owned third generation company that's that's I've I've seen few cultures as rich and as mature as they are who really have built. I don't know. They've they've built up this. It seems trite to say they act like a family, because it's it's not. It's more than that. Yeah. They're a they're a company that really has decided the most important tools they have to put asphalt on the dirt are the people who run the equipment. Yeah. So he, and they put the money there. Yeah. So one of the things Jimbo and I talked about uh, have talked about over the years is if you ask any organization, hey, what's your most valuable asset? I mean, what do you think people say? It's our, our people. Yeah, almost always. 100% our Unless people. it's a joke, and then yeah. it's carbon paper. <laughs> <laughs> and, and yet, it's funny when we follow up with, well, tell me a little bit about that. What does that look like for your organization? How does that manifest? That's a really good question, actually. And, That's a smart question. And, and most often, you kind of get a few blank stares, and you might get a few little low-hanging fruit items. But, but if you ask a Blair Williamson or the team at SL... You, you got to kind of, after about 30 minutes, be like, yeah, 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 we <laughs> we get it. There's just so many examples of, of the small things, the big things, the things, frankly, that probably sitting here we'll never even hear about that, that have the largest impact. And, and when we talk about, Todd, your, your emphasis today was, you know, compliance took us to a certain place, and it was good. And then we designed systems and, you know, roll cages to, to manage when, when systems failed, and that was good. And we've kind of flatlined in the reduction in, in accidents and injuries and fatalities for, by my, uh, from what I've seen since 1992. Right. There's been a reduction, right. kind of a flatline. And so then the question is, so what influences um, a steady decline towards this, as you coined it, asymptote? Um, well, that's not direction? my word. No, it's not your no. That's math. But, but <laughs> it's, it's the decline, you know, the, the trajectory towards zero but never quite getting there. Right. So how do we kind of as organizations chip away? And the answer is not more compliance, maybe not more safety, it's, it's maybe cultural. It's maybe attention to your people and, and what they think the, the solutions are. So it's really, I think you're right on target. It's really looking at that interface where the work meets the worker. Mm. And so that's a more holistic view. And we've not done that a lot in the past because we haven't had to, right? Compliance made a huge difference. Compliance is important. It's the foundation upon which we sort of establish what the standard should be. That dropped us process safety, design safety has been amazing and still amazing. But now we're at a point where our current processes aren't wrong or bad. They're just saturated. Mm. 
So you can only get so much benefit out of asking people to obey the rules. And yet the expectations many times from general contractors or for whoever you're working for is, hey, we need to get safer. We need to right. get have fewer incidents. And, and it sounds kind of twisted to say it, but, but maybe where you've landed is actually pretty good. Well, I was, I'd ask you guys this because, I mean, Jimbo, you're in a good place to answer this question. You guys manage the risk part. So does really, does the OSHA reportable numbers at the end of the day really make a difference? Do you care about ankle sprains? Uh, Honest to God. Yeah, so, I mean, I think what we're trying to do is exactly the exercise that you took those guys through today, which is to start to look at risk and how they manage it through a different lens. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Which is to say, you know, the environment in the world that they live in is measured by a consequence at the top. And and that consequence drives emotion, and emotion drives activity. Yeah. And a lot of times that activity is nothing more than more safety. Yeah, that's a good way to say it. And and what we want them to do is say, no, it's not it's not it's not what what you're doing just when the feeling is bad or the consequence is bad. It's what are you doing the rest of the time? Yeah, and that's the question, right? The question that I think you're really picking up on something. The question that I think is most valuable for your guys' world, internally to what you do and externally to the customers you do it with, is not what's an accident look like, but what's happening when nothing bad's happening. Because really, what these guys need to be able to answer is that question. When nothing bad, we're doing high-risk work, we're doing it in all kinds of conditions, and our outcomes are what we expected, what's happening? And the answer is a lot. Yeah, A lot. Their processes are working, their systems are working, their people are working, their risk management is working, their, their captive is working. All those things are working, right? And that actually creates a really interesting problem because now you have a data set with nothing in it because nothing happened. Yeah, and so the default there, to your point, is is to fix. So if something happens, there must be something that must be fixed. Right. right? And so, I mean, I, I heard you say this. Because fixing's way sexy. Right. We exactly. love fixing. So Jimbo and I were on the phone yesterday um, game planning for a client who's had two slip and fall injuries in Syracuse, New York. And um, there are high dollar claims, high emotion involved in that. And so the company, which is one of the, the best companies we work with, I mean, super engaged. They kind of get it, for the lack of a better term. Right. Um, they're saying, what do we got? We got to do something about this. What do we need to do? And, and we haven't quite hashed that out yet, and we're going to be on a call with them, I think, next week. But one So of what's the, the context of the falls? Ice. So, yeah, ice. Yeah, that's ice. right. So it's, here's the problem with ice. It's slippery. Right. <laughs> right. Right? right. And so you have to think, okay, ice is slippery, <laughs> so everything we do probably ought to be focused at making ice less slippery. So asking people to be careful is not that valuable. Right. Right? We have to build systems where, you know, uh, like UPS said, we stopped teaching. We stopped telling people how to not fall, and started teaching people how to land. Right, right, right? and that made a huge difference for them. Huh. And it, so, in this in this context, the question is, what what is actually, to some degree, acceptable? You know, if you've got 120 inches of snow in a place a year, and you've got slips and falls, and the dollar amount associated with it was is what evokes the emotion. Right. Is mm. it, it? This may sound like a a little bit of a maybe. Uncomfortable question, but is is two falls? Um, is that I don't want to say acceptable, but is that within the the ditches, if you will? But the, the answer th- is it would be acceptable to the organization if the people got up and 
continued about right. their day. Right. Right. And that's the problem because they're not thinking about it the right way. It's it's sort of your clock <laughs> clockwise is one direction uh, depending on how you're looking at it, and the opposite direction if you're looking down. Yeah, so if you put a pencil in the sky and go clockwise and then bring it straight down and look down at it, it's going counterclockwise. You're right. To me, what's interesting Just about stole that from you. So. No, you should. <laughs> uh, steal all this crap. What's interesting <laughs> to me about that question is, is, is what is acceptable, right? right? And the answer is if you get 120 inches of snow and you have lots of ice, Right, so you're gonna. The risk is always gonna be there. You're always gonna have fall protection. I mean, you're always gonna have a fall issue because ice is slippery, right? So the question you want to ask is, how do we understand? So here's my question: If you did a big program that said don't fall on the ice, and two people still fell, if the next year you did nothing and two people still fell, then the question is, is that what you have is a system in which two people are likely gonna fall every season? So then you have to ask, well, how are we gonna manage that? And you start thinking, can we stop people from falling? That's kind of hard because gravity is really constant. Or do we want to create a system where when they fall, Jimbo just said it, they have the ability to dust themselves off or get up, dust themselves off, and move straight on. So can we fall with the least amount of consequences as possible? As weird as it sounds, one of the things we did at Los Alamos is we went out and got a slip, trip, and fall simulator. Have you ever done this? No. no. So Blacksburg, Virginia has a, the what's – what's that – What's in Blacksburg? Virginia, Virginia Tech. Tech. Yeah, Virginia Tech. I always get it wrong, so I wanted to make sure I didn't get it wrong. There's a, there's a, uh, I think it's called Industrial Biodynamics. It's part of their school of transportation. They have a slip, trip, and fall simulator, and it's really interesting because what happens is, is you put a person on it and they fall because it's a fall simulator, but they've got a five-point harness on, and what they learn is really how to manage the fall. So the fall has the least amount of consequence. And, and really, the quick answer is, if you're going to fall on ice, land on your butt. Hmm. Because your butt is like a perfect landing pad. Pads. Is it pads? Pad. I'm sitting next to Bennett Whitehouse. <laughs> Governor. So, Governor so, Bennett Whitehouse. Yeah, I guess one of, the, one of the dynamics that maybe we didn't introduce to this conversation, so that would be pertinent if it were employees and you could... Send them off, but in this in this case, we're talking about third party. Yeah, so this is guess th- so the problem becomes really complex, right? Correct. And so then yeah. you have to ask this question: How can we make a system where we've made it as as unlikely as possible mm-hmm. to fall, but we're still going to have two a year, right? right? And you can probably look back, and they have two a year, two a year, two a year. I mean, you'd have to look at this data, and so then you have to say, okay, so when we have this, what's our recovery plan? So how how have we best recovered from this? What do we do? I mean, and there are ways. I mean, you, there are ways to look at this and say, what we're managing is not the risk. I mean, that's the important message. Is is companies that you work with, risk is a part of their everyday job. That that's what they do. They have risk. What they manage is how they have the ability to respond to that risk. Right. So the controls, the safeguards, the barriers, the recovery. That's all really an important part of understanding risk. And that's what you guys do. I mean, you, yeah, and, and you don't really help them manage risk, even though that's the language you use. What you do is help them prepare for the risk that they're going to have to manage because risk is just risk. Yeah, yeah and I think, that's a, I think that's a good point, too, because, and you can probably answer this based on your background, but frankly, a lot of the companies that we serve are not the Fortune yeah. 100 that you deal with where maybe the numbers that they have are more statistically valid. A a lot of the people that we work 
we're trying to convince them that that the risk plays out over the life. Yeah. It doesn't play out over a policy period. Yeah, period. Yeah. Of, of time. And so any blip on their radar that they may see, they're they're going, oh, well, this was a good year, and last year was a bad year, or this is a good month and a bad month, and nothing's really changed. That's true. and that's But that's hard, right? Because we tend to react to consequence in the moment. And there's a lot of things. People are freaked out, and it's morally decrepit. That's an earthquake. There's an actual yeah. earthquake. That's the ice machine. We're in a hotel lab- lobby. There's that is an ice machine, baby. That's what ice machine yeah. sounds like. Um, they're going to react to the risk immediately, but really what we want them to do is to not think so much about the risk, but to think about the, the sort of capacity to, to have events, the capacity to have risk. Yeah. And really that's what we want to – companies that are successful, and you, you guys see this because you work with lots of successful – mostly companies don't have accidents. I mean, they mostly go out and do really crazy work in a crazy condition and don't fail. So mostly what they have are systems that are actually really robust and pretty recoverable. Instead of asking people to not have accidents, which is kind of what people want to say, what we want to say is how do we ensure that we build a system that's stable and that's recoverable and that has the latitude for flex in it? So when something fails, it doesn't fail catastrophically. It fails kind of gently. Yeah, yeah so, so, I, so along the lines of, of building that infrastructure, one of the things that you know, it's funny, we talk about we help clients manage risk, and, and really what I, I kind of conceptualize our role really is as directing organizations to who they should be seeking the information from. Yeah. And by and large, what, what we see is it's, to your to your kind of analogy, it's the tip of the spear. It's yeah. the folks who are most closely um, engaging. So let's deconstruct what you said because so I like what you just said. We help companies manage risk. The most important word in that sentence is not risk. The most important word in that sentence is manage, mm-hmm. right? And that when you think about it that way, because risk is just risk. I mean, I think we spend a lot of time saying we want to reduce risk or control risk. Risk is risk. Everything's kind of risky, right? The important thing is do we have the capacity to do this risky work? Can we manage the actual risk that's there? And that's what you guys do, right? I mean, you help them, you help them manage it over the long term. You help them manage it practically, operationally, but also financially and strategically. Yeah. So pri- pri- when you think about yeah, when you think about the strategic things you do for companies, your job in a way, I would guess. I mean, I don't want to tell you what to do, but your job in a way is probably <laughs> to make them look at their operations over the long term, and to really invest in becoming better and better at managing the work they do. Yeah, and so a big part of that, a lot of the conversations we have center back to employees, and, and if there's one thing we really believe strongly, it's that uh, one of the most important things, if not the most important thing organizations can do is build their bench with depth and quality. Absolutely. And 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 the more turnover you've got, if you've got a culture that's somewhat abrasive or, or doesn't at least create stickiness, um, folks are less accountable to each other, they're less likely to bite into the initiatives, and and all that really centers on, as, as Jimbo's kind of created over the years, is this mantra of care, compassion, concern, yeah. and, a, and, a, and a culture centric on employee quality of life. And if you can do that and you have consistent employees, less turnover, man, you, you're prioritizing your time and energy and efforts on an area that's going to have multiple outputs, impact on operations, impact on productivity, on competence, on, on uh, accidents, incidents, or incidents, I should say. Um, and so, I mean, that's when we help clients manage risk. That's 
a lot of where we focus our energy and effort is bench quality and, and depth because that has a huge impact on multiple other um, levels. Which is odd. I mean, it's not odd. It's great. In fact, amen to what you just said. But what's odd is if the rest of the world looks at what you do, they think what you're doing is reducing risk. But you're not reducing risk. I mean, I love what you're saying. You're not reducing risk. You're, you're building capacity. Mm. Yeah, so what right. you're building is people who are competent at managing the risk that they deal with, whether they work at a 7-Eleven or put asphalt on parking lots or build bridges or whatever they do, right? They're competent at managing the risk that they deal with. And and they're and and I would make the argument that they're um they're 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 operating in an environment where um, management does trust them to understand the work at a level that's greater than their own understanding of the work. So you just said something amazing. I believe a hundred percent what you said. I question whether management realizes that. Let me let me own that a little differently. I question whether all managers truly believe that the workers are actually smarter at managing risk than they are as managers. Mm. Yeah, and I, and I think that's I think that's part of the mission that we're on. Absolutely, is to get them to see it that way and to create the engagements that's necessary to really understand the systems and build them in a way that you talk about. I mean, one of the things that that you really got me focused on is this whole notion of a single source of failure uh-huh. and and it's something that we really haven't talked to our customers about but it's something that that I'm going to start talking to them about because I think it really does speak to the point it doesn't matter how good how qualified any individual is um, if that if that notion that um, one one misstep which is logical natural, predictable um, is not followed, then there can be failure. So speak to, speak to that a little bit. Well, I think that's really an interesting point that the promise that companies, so it goes right back to what you guys are saying, is what scares me more than anything is not the presence of risk. What scares me more than anything is the absence of controls, the absence of being able to manage risk. And anytime you put a worker in a position where the only safeguard they have is they'll be perfect, that's a critical flaw in your system. But it's not just critical to safety, although we care about safety. I mean, that's what we care about. It's also critical to quality. It's critical to production. It's critical to finance. I mean, if you're, if you're in a position where, it, where only one person is between you and disaster, then you need to put a second. I mean, you, you want to put a second layer of protection there, whatever that looks like. And a lot of times it's a, you know, it's a, it's, so if you have a, if there's one switch that can only be turned at a certain time, then you ought to make it pretty hard to turn that switch, and you ought to make it maybe have a validation step before you actually pull that switch, right? And all you're doing really is adding another layer of control on something that has potential high-risk consequence. And what's amazing is that's actually relatively easy to manage, and where this gets interesting for us is that we talk about safety but I'd actually suggest that's probably got more impact with critical steps to production. That if you if you do your work and and you're one person away from not being able to get the job done, you need to get another person, right? You need to you need to put some depth <laughs> right. on the bench, right? Yeah. That's just what you're talking about, and that's what companies try to develop. And and companies that are good at that, well, first of all, companies that are good at that, oftentimes don't know why they're good at it. 
Because the question, what's happening when nothing's happening, that question really flummoxes people at first. But it's important. If you do high-risk work and nothing bad happens, you ought to be able to tell me why. Hmm. And it kind of boils down to, are you good or are you lucky? And either data set's good. If they tell you you're lucky, then yeah. you've just discovered a place where you can grow. And I, and I think that's, you know, I, I've always said, um, you know, safety and, and luck are identical twins. And being able to distinguish those two is, is really a sort of core competency that, that organizations need to have but never sort of go down that That's road. That's a beautiful thing you just said. That's brilliant. You can write a book on you, that. You can steal it. I probably will. <laughs> I consider it stolen. Well, one of, one of the things you said in your talk to S.L. Williamson today, Todd, was, was so they are identical twins. You didn't say that. That's Jimbo. We'll keep that to him. But I probably stole but, it from Todd. But you, I think Bennett Whitehouse said Bennett Whitehouse said <laughs> Governor Bennett Whitehouse. But what you said is it, it's a real measure of how you, how you create uh, controls or, or defenses is how organizations respond. So for SL, for example, they had an, an example maybe several months, three or f- maybe five months ago where they had a, a piece of equipment roll over. No negative consequence. The guy was wearing a seatbelt. Right. He got up. Everything was fine. And so some companies could look at that and say, that was a catastrophic failure. You rolled over the piece of equipment. It slowed production. But in reality, with, with context to what could have happened, with his injury or fatality, neither of those things happened. And so it's an overarching success. Well, it's a huge success. You know, celebrated. I mean, it's it's the reason safely. you buy equipment that has roll protection and seatbelts. Mm-hmm. I mean, I, in fact, I told those guys today that on heavy equipment, seatbelts are put on there entirely to keep guys from jumping out when it rolls over. Because right. the problem is, is when the, when, the, when the thing rolls over, you jump <laughs> away, you jump to safety, but you're going to jump into the line of fire. Cause then that's you how, get rolled that, over. Yeah, that's how gravity works, right? You're going to jump the way it's rolling, which means the equipment is now going to smash you. And so the crazy thing about seatbelts on fork trucks, right, mm-hmm. is that a seatbelt on a fork truck is designed almost entirely to keep the driver in. Right. Right? Or like bobcats, you know how they have that bar that comes down? Yeah. All right, that's a really great system. That's designed entirely. That interlock is designed entirely so that when it rolls, because it will, when it rolls, it keeps the operator inside the roll cage. Yeah. So there, it's a success. So it seems to me like there's there's multiple levels. We we come back to culture a lot, and I think that's a buzzword that, frankly, it, it's used so often it gets exhausting. But when you think I agree. About, when you think about what's missed out, um, when an organization is one that is you know there's an overarching theme of fear and fear of retribution, you miss out on on so many opportunities. Say for example, the piece of equipment rolls. Nothing negative happens outside of the piece of equipment rolled. The guy is safe. He's, he's healthy. He's fine. Um, but then he gets fired for that. All of a sudden, you've set the precedent for all subsequent incidents yeah, that's for stupid. people to go, oh, we're not going to share yeah, no, that's stupid. near misses that's with a, anybody. A well, horrible reaction. Yeah, so that I was going to ask that question. I mean, you talk about small signal events as, as sort of being a core competency of sort of some of the best organizations that you know relative to how they develop their systems and, and build defenses. And talk briefly about that and what you see and, and how, how clients can get engaged in that. So let's talk about S.L. Williams, the company today. My guess is, just from spending a little time with them, my guess is is they're highly sensitized to weak signals. 
And the reason they're highly sensitized to weak signals is because they're pulsing their workers. So they know something that other companies don't know, and they figured it out clearly a long time ago. And that is that the world's experts on how they successfully do work already work for them. Mm. It cracks me up that I travel all over the place and basically tell companies to talk to their workers. It really does. It's sort of, it's, <laughs> yeah, I mean, I it seems the same way. <laughs> it's a little bit like stealing, right? Yeah. And what's amazing is once they start talking to their workers, once they have this dialogue, and you knew that these guys this morning had the dialogue because they just came up and talked to each other all the time. I mean, they just told each other. They were teasing and laughing, and but they clearly communicate a lot. That is the identification of those early signals, the weak signals that exist in the system. And the thing that your clients need to be hyper aware of is that weak signals only exist in normal work. So you can't wait for the, the equipment to roll over to identify a weak signal because it's no longer a weak signal. That's a, that's a big old loud signal, right? So part of what happens is is you have to be fixated on how normal work happens in, in order to be in a position to identify these signals that you're drifting out of your risk management picture you know you're, you're past your barriers you're outside your ditches mm -hmm. that's an example we used earlier today and that means they have to be a lot more cognizant of what normal is and normal is never ever what you think it is i mean one of the interesting things about the soms and people today is that the owner of the company said you know i started out as an estimator and she said i figured out something really early every time i estimate it's always wrong well, I guess that's, <laughs> but I guess that's why they call it an estimate, right? Mm. And the reason is, is because reality always bumps its head against the estimate. Mm. So you build estimates that have the capacity to manage normal production variability. And a good estimator knows how to do that. It's not too high because that would be bad for the client or for the customer. And it's not too low because that'd be bad for the client. It's somewhere in that sweet spot where it's got enough capacity in it that variability can happen and it's manageable, but not so much capacity that it's greedy. Mm. And that's, that's a really interesting talent. Now, I would actually suggest, Jimbo, that your clients are good at that. I mean, if they're not, they're probably out of business. <laughs> right, right. So one of the things you can ask them is how, when you look at the financial risk and estimate work, how do you do that? And then let's transfer what happens on the financial side into the operations side. Well, how can we take those same ideas? How can we build enough capacity in this job so that when there's normal variability, there's some room to play with? It doesn't make the system fail, but there's not so much room that it's really hard to get the work done. It's, mm. it's, there's too much safety crap to actually do work. So you have to kind of find that sweet spot. And to me, the most important message, at least the message I come back to over and over again, is you can't wait for an accident to talk about capacity. You have to talk about capacity in normal work. And you think about, like, you put together a captive group, and you come together and you learn from each other, which is something you guys are really good at, right? One of the things that I think is bad is that the captive group spends a lot of time talking about accidents because they have impact. But I'd actually suggest if they're talking about accidents, it's a day late and a dollar short. Amen. <laughs> what they need to be talking <laughs> yeah. about is high-risk work where they heard a weak signal and mm -hmm. responded and either saved it financially, mm -hmm. saved it in quality, saved it in production, or saved it in operation. Yeah, so uh, one, of the, one of the things that you probably know we do with our captive groups is we have what has evolved to event learning discussions. Uh, the problem is is that the event learning discussion trigger is 
an incident with event. a significant dollar value. Yeah, event. Right? <laughs> and, 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 and often there's not really anything all that exciting about that event. A lot of the events that would be a lot more informative and have lessons would be ones where there were no consequences. Mm-hmm. I agree. In fact, probably, I'll bet you, the events that have dollar value, the events are probably actually super uninteresting. It's just a really bad thing happened. So we hit a power line. Okay, so here's what happens. It's an energized source. You hit it. You had an arc event. A yeah. bad thing happened, right? Yeah. That's, that's not. There's not much you can learn from that. You already knew that was going to happen. The better ones, if you do event learning with like a, a group of people that all kind of do the same thing, is one of the things you ought to ask them is, what's the best near miss you had? Where's the best learning? Um, where did you put a system in place that actually avoided a high consequence, consequence to quality, consequence to production? I mean, I honestly think you guys are in a position now, and this is probably a great problem to have, so um, you should kind of be... I don't know if happy is the right word, but proud of it, is you're in a position now where really the difference between quality production and safety are, is not very much. I mean, it's just not, yeah. it's, and it's I think, just not very much. I think that's, you know, one of the, one of the lessons you, you've, you've taught us is really the, 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 you know, in the best organizations, the sort of lines between operations and safety are, are, are completely. Yeah, they're gone. They're gone. And I think that's a huge lesson and s- developmental step yeah. for organizations, yeah. especially uh, the sort of middle market, family-owned businesses yeah. that we work yeah. with. Yeah, which are which are great businesses, right? Yeah. And all those guys are doing is trying to work as hard as they can to give all their people a good quality of life. They want them to have a good job. I mean, you can just see it. Like today, you just saw it. And the benefit the owners get out of it is that they get a company that they're proud of, that contributes to the community. That's really important to your members. I mean, you can just see that. And that they're, they're making money, right? Mm-hmm. And the way they do that is, is really by understanding the bench, by understanding that what they're really developing are people that can do really highly variable work in a complex world. Yeah, that's right. So I, I think summing things up today, and, and you guys add on a little bit, but just for the folks listening, we appreciate you tuning in. And, and one of the things I walk away with, just the reinforcement, the tapping into your not making assumptions about what you think is going on. Is, is a leadership team tapping into the intellectual capital that exists within your organization? Because as Todd, you've said, your experts exist already. Yeah, and you they, pay them. Yeah. To me, the best place for an owner to be is not knowing. Not knowing is much more interesting than knowing. Mm. So if you don't know why this job was successful, that's actually kind of exciting because it gives you the opportunity to go out and figure out why. Why is it we're successful here? Why are we the best people at putting parking lots in front of hotels? You should answer that question. You should know that. Yeah. I I mean, well said. And um, I just think there's a myriad of lessons and opportunities from, from this discussion and, um, that was a big boy word, myriad. <laughs> Hello, college boy. Woo! Um, well, uh, I don't know what to say. Sorry. For Other than you're brilliant. So, so sorry for the big words, but, uh, but thank, thank, just special thanks to you, Todd, for yeah. uh, t- taking, thank you. Thank taking you. time Absolutely. out. I'm to, glad to be on this podcast. Good luck. We appreciate it. Good to see you again, and, and hopefully we'll get to catch up with you soon. And thanks to everybody for tuning in. Buena suerte. Adios. Adios.